Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and the treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Welcome to 3CR. You're listening to Wednesday Breakfast. It is the 28th of October and in studio there is Idwin, myself and Rob. Hey. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Rob, how, how oh, beat me to it. <laughs> so uh, I suppose I'll start off and then I'll handball to you quickly because I have been, I've been in assignment hell and now I'm out of assignment hell and into glorious university holidays. And I suppose oh. I want to extend my, my relaxation, my relaxed vibes out to our audience. <laughs> I hope all of you are getting a holiday soon. It is definitely in need. Um, I mean, we just had a long weekend, so that was that was nice. Um, so anyway, yeah, my message is basically I've been stressed, now I'm less stressed, and I hope everyone else out there becomes less stressed soon. How well, have you been? <laughs> when I've been talking with people, I feel like the mood is actually, like obviously restaurants opening is great and everything, but really what people really need is just a holiday, like lying on a beach yeah. somewhere, being in a mountain, just being somewhere not where you currently are and just driving somewhere or getting out of the city mm. and I think that's kind of like collectively Melbourne needs that like and so I think when we can all get that it's mm. gonna be great well Melbourne to June uh, sorry March to June it was like house improvements oh setting up my mm-hmm. study oh I have to deal with all of these you know Oc health and safety setup things all those <laughs> sorts of jazz and now it's like you know august september it was like oh it's it's nice weather so it's nice to be home and enjoy the weather and now i think october you know we're hitting into november and people are like i need to go somewhere else <laughs> but i'm also facing this issue of being a bit overwhelmed by the possibility of choice the fact that choice has been so strict i'm like you know where do I who do I who do I meet first where do I go first I don't know and it's a little bit overwhelming to have that much choice all of a sudden Mm. and then when hairdressers started to reopen I was like ah I actually kind of like having long hair I might just just let it grow out a little bit longer until it's no longer socially acceptable and then finally get it cut I don't know I feel like in a strange way when things open up more I'll definitely do things but I think Mm. I'll actually be relatively quiet and sleeping just like the the feeling I don't know I I don't see myself like running out straight away no and I think it's important that we don't um one because like we've had a lot of lack of sensory stuff going on and so to push yourself out there I think for a lot of people they'll find themselves deeply overwhelmed very quickly also on a virus basis we want to make take this slow (laughs) and all that sort of stuff but I definitely agree like purposeful planning is a great idea just so you can kind of get an idea of what you want to go and, you know, out of the vast overwhelming choice, select one course of action. <laughs> ease, ease your way in, basically. Mm, ease your way yeah. in, exactly, exactly. Um, apart from that, have, like, any fantastic cooking stories to report, anything like that? 
No, cooking's been a little bit sub-average, I have to say, recently. But, mm. you know, there's post-post-semester done. I'm, I have a series of three-hour-plus recipes lined up for, to work through. So we'll wait till then, <laughs> basically. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> Coming up, I suppose, on the show then, we'll just kick off. Um, today we're actually going to have a chat with Kerry Warren from Malakuta. And Kerry Warren has been elected into the Malakuta and District Recovery Association, MADRA for short. And it, it's a bit of a, I suppose, feature interview. This isn't necessarily current affairs, but we're touching base with Kerry and how Malakuta has been repairing and recovering since the bushfires, uh, you know, at the start of the year, also coming up to like the anniversary of bushfires and stuff like that. And just the slow process of a community recovering both in an official capacity through this recovery association that's taken a year to set up and also unofficially you know just just through community members initiatives and stuff like that so it's a bit of a I suppose sideways step to what we're used to hearing we're used to hearing more like current affairs on the pulse sort of thing but um I reached out to some folks from Melacuda a few months ago and um we've sort of eased our way into doing this interview so I think it will be a lovely little piece uh, that's that's kind of coming up as our main interview for the day. We'll also have some conversations from around the station that I'll include later. Grand thoughts today. We are. I was inspired by your discussion last week on language and the use of old wives' tales. So this week, we're having a bit of a discussion about slang and mm. you know, what it means. What are kind of some of the more sort of interesting sub meanings towards slang? and sort of unpacking that a little bit. So it should be an interesting little discussion. On that note, very excited about the slang conversation. Um, as a personal little piece, I realised that I, I used to use the slang term ibagom all the time. Ibagom is not an accepted slang word. It's actually a line from the Goodies episode where they have uh, the Goodies, the 70s show from England, where they have the black pudding, which is the fiercest weapon in the whole of UK. And as you hit your foe with the black pudding, you go ibagom and smack him over the head. Um, so I have a lot of slang terms that I've just inherited from very strange places, and I'm very excited for the conversation to come. Well, we can discuss what they all mean, uh, hopefully, in, in a little bit while. <laughs> but you're listening to 3CR, and we're going to jump into some music and alternative news. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're going to have to get right down to the real nitty gritty. Let's get right down to the real nitty gritty now. One, two, nitty gritty now.
Okay, so for alternative news, uh, we're doing Australian stories today or a couple of stories really as focus. The first one I wanted to kick off with is a new bill that's currently before federal parliament called the Defence Legislation Amendment, brackets, Enhancement of Defence Forces Response to Emergencies Bill 2020. So what is it? The new bill, uh, as I said before the Senate currently, uh, aims to regulate the call out of defence forces in response to natural disasters occurring within Australia. Now, in the bill outline, you can see it for yourself at the Australian Parliamentary website, but the bill's outline basically says that it firstly wants to streamline the process for calling out members of the Australian Defence Force Reserves, including for the purposes of responding to natural disasters or emergencies. And secondly, it wants to provide ADF members, other defence personnel, and members of foreign forces with immunity from criminal or civil liability in certain cases, while performing duties to support civil emergency and disaster preparedness, recovery and response. Now, I take the time to read out those two outline bits because I think that this bill is actually quite, quite frightening, and it's not got a lot of airtime on mainstream media. So as I said earlier, the bill is currently before Senate. It's in its second reading. Sorry, its second reading was moved at the 6th of October. So it's now open for debate, any amendments, and potentially a third reading. It went through the lower house pretty easily. So there's not a lot to say that it's going to get blocked in the Senate. Outside of my own concerns, uh, quite a few people have come forward and actually said, okay, this bill is deeply problematic problematic. The main one of whom is Kelly Tranter, a lawyer, a human rights activist, and a writer for the Independent Australia. And she has identified the following issues. So the first thing she says is that the bill fails to properly define other emergencies, aka the reasons why ADF would be deployed in the first place. So she says, look, it says environmental emergencies like we saw with the bushfires earlier this year. However, the bill fails to describe what a situation would be in the future. And this could be deeply concerning as it's then down to state, you know, definition. She then argues that it delegates too much responsibility for the call out of the ADF to a single minister. So in the bill, it's actually written that the ADF would be deployed on the discretion of the minister in charge, and it would be that minister's decision to make. There's also large questions in the bill around the um, immunity that it would hold for that minister, with the, like, um, depending on the consequence of that deployment. She then expands her criticism to say that the bill also permits foreign armies and police forces to be called in and gives the same sort of immunity for legal liabilities as Australian forces. This is deeply concerning. The bill would allow not only ADF to come in, but technically the government to get other foreign forces in to deal with a national emergency. And again, after the, you know, after the crisis had been dealt with, the retrospective inquiry and all that sort of stuff, they could be granted significant immunity through decisions and things like that. This is definitely worrying because the bill does not restrict the use of force of defence forces, and it basically um, extends an unreasonable level of immunity to the defence force from criminal and civil civil penalties. So ADF personnel from the civil and criminal liability um, would be exempt as long as their acts were done in, and I quote the bill here, good faith. So that's before the Senate currently. It's not got a lot of airtime. It's one of those ones which in the context of the bushfires makes a lot of sense even maybe you could argue in uh the context of covid and what we've seen with like adf deployment however the bill seems like from surface level 
um, as well as deeper, <laughs> deeper criticism, it seems like a militarization and, um, a, you know, a securitization of Australia. So it's, it's, it's quite concerning. Jumping over to that, um, another part that I wanted to quickly touch on is an article to come out from The Age this weekend. That, so it's published on Saturday. Uh, and it's reported that Victorian prisoners with known intellectual disabilities are currently facing internal disciplinary hearings and receiving punishments without specialist support services. And obviously the consequence of this is that um, many people who have been convicted or are facing hearings do not understand necessarily what is happening, what they have done wrong and what their legal options are. So during COVID, there's been a massive problem with outreach. I was talking to one um, peer support worker in Melbourne who was talking about homelessness services. And he said, you know, it's been reduced by something like three quarters. And this is a similar, this is similar for like all advocacy groups and all human rights groups in Australia. Um, but how it applies to this story is the fact that, you know, a lot of prisoners with known intellectual disabilities are not getting the help or assistance or advocacy that they used to. So external services that used to help prisoners go through trials and stuff like that. Currently there's just not a lot of help and, prisons are not actually reaching out to these groups to get them to help out with cases. So there's been 433 hearings from January the 1st to October the 13th for people with diagnosed intellectual disabilities, according to Justice Department figures. And there's been very, very few um, that have been given the support that, you know, a lot of agencies say they deserve. So um, that's been another massive point of concern. I think another really important bit is that um, other advocates are coming out and saying, you know, a lot of these people with known intellectual disabilities are more vulnerable in the prison system, lack enough, lack support in the prison system, and are often wrongly convicted or forced into solitary confinement for punishment. Um, that is due to their, you know, them having a disability, which is viewed as inconvenient to a prison or is viewed as, you know, um, bad behavior. So there's just uh, there's a little bit of, um, I suppose, buzz around that at the moment. I think that's a story that really needs a lot more attention. And finally, on the subject of prisons, my last story is, uh, oh, my last story, my last community outreach maybe is a better way to describe it. Um, a group of advocates based in Melbourne have started up an incarcerated trans and gender diverse community fund. I Now, this fund is a national fund to help provide financial and material support to trans and gender diverse people who are incarcerated. And the fund aims to provide support for trans people in prison and for their then post-release returning into the communities. The fund goes towards buying things uh, such as gender affirming clothing and underwear, toiletries, binders, assisting families to provide phone credit, postage costs, books and reading resources, and medical expenses not covered by the state. It's a fantastic fund. It's up to Thirty thousand, I believe it's it's quite it's it's growing, and I think it's one of those ones where you you can make a real impact, you know, through having a look at it or at least following the group and finding out more about it. Um, now, a big apology to wrap up this alternative news. We have been pretty slack on the rundowns, and so there's been a lot of links not going up. However, I can assure you that these will be up this week as I am currently off uni and have the capacity to do them. So apologies for dropping the ball a bit these past weeks, um, but, but we'll be catching up soon. So that's all for me for Alternative News. We'll now jump into some music and come back with an interview. Just a moment, just a moment, just a moment. Just a moment Just a moment Just a moment 
Just a moment, just a moment. I know I say this all the time. I got a problem with repeating myself. I know I say this all the time. I got a problem with repeating myself. I know I say this all the time. I got a problem with repeating myself. I just love being by your side. I don't need nobody else. With just a moment, just a moment. If you're wrestling with feelings of anxiety, worry and depression or finding the current social isolation measures hard to deal with, we would like to encourage you to call Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are seeking information about mental health or mental health services or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. If you feel it would be helpful to talk to someone about these issues during this difficult period, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111 500. That's 1300 111 500. 
Wellway supports 3CR. Hi, this is Warren from the Concrete Gang. The federal government is using COVID as an excuse to wind back workers' rights. If you're concerned about issues in your workplace, including health and safety during the COVID-19 shutdown, contact your union. In fact, demand action from your union. It is time to get on the front foot. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. So you're listening to 3CR. Today we are catching up with Kerry Warren, who is currently elected a member of the Malakuta and District Recovery Association, or MADRA for short. Now, just a quick heads up with this conversation, we are about to dive in to be dis- into discussing the bushfires that happened earlier this year. If this is a conversation that is still a bit raw or brings up any level of distress, please feel free to tune out and rejoin in 15 minutes. We will also provide help services at the end of this interview because we recognize it's a tough subject. Now, getting on to the interview itself, Kerry, we all saw the devastating images to come out of Malakuta earlier this year. And catching up with you today, I really just wanted to get a sense of where the recovery process is at and how Malakuta is doing as a community. So as a starting point, could I get you to introduce yourself and Madra and how this system all started, I suppose? So I'm Kerry Warren. I've lived in Malakuta for my entire life. Um, These were the first big bushfires that I've seen come through the town. As part of MADRA, I guess it started with a thinking group that was looking at the the community-led recovery. Um, From that, there was an election of nominated members which I was fortunate enough to be to be elected as part of the the recovery association which was fantastic. A a long process especially with COVID everything's been of course um, not face-to-face it's all been online meetings as as we're doing now so everything's from a distance that's been a little bit tricky for members and just getting through the the initial processes of becoming incorporated and looking at projects and the pillars that we need to come under as far as involving the community. We've been um, trying to have a community consultation, but, of course, we can't have any community meetings at the moment. So that's been a real struggle. But certainly the recovery of Malacuta is moving forward with all of the houses now having been cleared and people able to, to look a little bit towards the future as far as whether they're rebuilding they're repurchasing, some people are revegetating their properties, um, lots of different scenarios there, but certainly people starting to, I guess, see the light at the end of the tunnel. It's been a very long road. Absolutely, and I suppose with the the official recovery process, it is such a slow thing. Have you guys started off with, like, small projects or is it, as you said, you've, you're kind of in the still in the clearing phase? Where, where are you guys, would you say, you're up to? 
That's right. So we've only just become incorporated, so we can now start to take donations from from different entities, um, entities, sorry, and we're just starting to move forward with trying to get some community input into what projects we need to get up and running. There, there's a few in the works. We're really pushing at the moment um, some of the issues that have been raised after the bushfire. Some of those would be the housing issues, um, any issues with people getting permits and the rebuild. We're trying to, to get through those initial problems so that we can see people moving forward instead of trying to just dive into projects that people don't really want within the community. Really trying to get their input a little bit more. Absolutely. And how is the, I suppose, if we talk about the the official recovery process, how's the unofficial recovery process going that any community has to do in the wake of such a such a tragedy? I guess it's a little bit frustrating. There's things that you think should have happened now that we're we're ten months on from the event. Um, that haven't happened, sometimes it does feel like you're hitting your head against the wall because you're not getting the responses that you need and you can see that people need assistance that they're trying to get and everyone's trying to do their best but sometimes it's just government departments that are making that a little bit more challenging. I think that people will get there in the end but how long it takes I'm not sure. Some of the, the projects that have been scheduled through our local council some of those aren't set until next year, so it feels like a really long time since the event before they even get started with some of those projects. But then there's other projects that they've they've managed to to get well underway and they're near completion. Mm. I think that covers most of, most of it. It's really hard to talk about Madra when there's not a lot that's happening in that space at the moment that the public will see. There's a lot that's happening behind the scenes to get everything up and running. Mm. So hopefully we'll have a few projects that we can we can announce soon, which would be great. Yeah, look, it, it's it's all that setting up, isn't it? Setting up work so you actually can operate functionally. Um, no, I that's think, right. I think and that process has taken so long. Mm. Yeah, and you really do feel that okay, we are now ten months on from from the event, and what have we actually achieved in that in that time? And that's where it can be a bit frustrating. One of the things that was announced quite early on was that council were going to fast-track permits for flame-affected residents. Mm -hmm. There's still people waiting for permits to be approved. So you kind of go, well, that's not really fast-tracked if it's taking, you know, they may have only put it in a couple of months after they lost their home, but that still could be taking six months to get a planning permit approved, and they're the frustrating things. I wanted to touch on uh, Rob Gordon, who's been in Malakuta doing workshops on trauma and healing, working off his own experiences with bushfires in the past. What has this um, been for the community? How has it helped the community identify what next steps need to be helped or, or taken in recovery? I think Rob Gordon has been an amazing asset to our community with the with the webinars and the um and the sessions that he's been running as far as nothing's abnormal. Everyone takes a little bit longer to heal um, and to recover from the bushfire process. We At the moment we're talking about the anniversary of the bushfires, whether to have an anniversary, if that's what people want, what's okay. And he's really showing what is okay and, and it's okay to feel like you don't want that and to just take your own time with that process. So it, it does help with that frustration 
mm. and the anxiety as we get closer to the, the next bushfire season to know that it is okay to feel a little bit anxious because we're getting closer to the bushfire season or they've started doing some controlled burning around the town. It's okay to to go back to the fires mm. because you're seeing that happening and we're acknowledging all of that as we go. And I wanted to, you know, in reaching out about this interview and organising it, um, I, I know I've spoken to a few people who said you've just been swamped by media and there's just been a, a lot of attention and stuff like that. And I wanted, I wanted, from your perspective, what are the kind of stories that you feel need to be being told about Malakuta and coming out of Malakuta and, you know, that with media attention? I think one of the ones that came came up early on that was just I don't know where it came from, the initial story, but the fact that we were all crammed on the foreshore, everyone was in the water. People had to get in the water to escape the fire. We were down at the wharf. There was nobody in the water unless they were in a boat and that was their fire plan. Everyone followed their fire plan as best they could. There were people down at the beach. There were people on the wharf, on the foreshore, because they were the safe areas we were told to. There was a lot of information that came out of the the CFA and forest fire management. Um, yes, the meeting wasn't well publicised, so a lot of people didn't even know there was that meeting, but the meeting itself had a lot of good information in it. We were kept up to date the whole time that we were at the wharf um, because they had members walking around, but there seemed to be this this vision of people having 4,000 people in the water bobbing around at the wharf Mm. and it just so wasn't the case. It was quite calm. There was no one that was erratic. Everyone knew what they were doing. People were given out face masks. They were given goggles for when the ember attack came. It It was a very controlled and calm scenario considering what was going on around us. And I think that, like I say, unless you had a plan to actually get in the water, no one was rushing to the water. We weren't under threat in those safe zones. Right. And, you know, with this process of rebuilding, what do you think have been some of the central tenets of strength shown by Malakuta during this crisis and during this recovery process? Because as you've mentioned, like this, you're recovering from a crisis with another compounding crisis on top. It's been a as I hate to say it, unprecedented circumstances. Oh, absolutely it has. It's been it's been a real challenge. It's been quite difficult. I I think that one thing that Malakuta is amazing at is everyone coming together and helping each other when they're in need. That is that is a major strength of people in Malakuta. We talk about divisions within our town with different um different things that are going on but certainly after the fires everyone came together to help each other yes there's issues with the rebuild yes there's issues with people being able to move forward but everyone around the people that lost their properties are really trying to assist them to get over the line and get that planning permit or or have enough options to make an informed decision as opposed to just rushing out and doing the first thing because there was a lot of concern after the fires when people came home, where am I going to live? Mm. What am I going to do? So that was something that was really carefully considered was ensuring that everyone had a home to come back to. Where it's Yes, it's not their principal place of residence. It's not the home that they've always had. It's a roof over their head. It's somewhere to settle that they know that they can be for a longer term 
ensuring that everyone felt safe in being able to return and knowing where they were going. Absolutely. And you did mention before that, you know, government's been a bit of a sticky point and just, just pushing through things through and organising projects. I was wondering, you know, Scott Morrison at the start of the year announced a fire budget and fire relief funding. And has that come through for Malakuda? Is that reaching the people it needs to? I think that there's there's certainly been enough money coming out um, as far as grants. That's really been quite good in our area. People have been able to to access funding that way through mainly through the Red Cross, um, St Vincent de Paul. A lot of those organisations came in early on, and the DHHS had some some payments with regards to rent relief for people who didn't have insurance. Those sort of um, that sort of funding came in quite early and continues for people who missed out on it at the start. There hasn't been a lot of other funding that we've been able to access as yet because we we need to lock in those bigger projects and apply for the grants in order to get that funding through. So that's where we're at with Madra at the moment is looking at those projects and what grants we'll be applying for. Well, thank you so much, Kerry, for like coming on and giving us that picture and the time. Um, we really appreciate to hear how you guys are recovering and getting through it and getting stronger. Um, and we, yeah, we wish you the best of luck with this next step. Thank you. And that was Kerry Warren from the Malakuda and District Recovery Association, or MADRA for short. Now, as we were just discussing um, Malakuda's official and unofficial recovery process from the bushfires earlier this year, I did want to quickly give a shout out to some support for anyone who might be feeling distressed or upset by the content we were just chatting about. So the website that I want to recommend is OzHelp, which is www.ozhelp.com. .org.au and that provides um, basically a where to get support directory. The phone number I'll also give a shout out to is the Lifeline Bushfire Recovery um, phone number which is 13 43 57. That's 13 43 pack two one for me one for my bad attitude wherever I go she goes to my bad attitude my bad attitude caused me nothing but trouble when I order a drink gotta make it a double one for me one for you know who my bad attitude Go to a restaurant She act real rude She stiff the waiter And she send back the food Then everybody looks at me like I'm the dude with a bad attitude Now we're at a party It's no surprise She in no mood to socialize me nothing but trouble when I order a drink gotta make it a double one for me one for you know who my bad attitude 
talking to Cause when I pack a bag I gotta pack two One for me, one for my bad attitude Wherever I go, well She goes to my bad attitude My bad attitude Cause me nothing but trouble When I order a drink Gotta make it a double One for me One for you know who Wherever I go She goes too It's always me Just me and my bad attitude Get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at the station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. change we need to show broad community support. Show your support for walking and cycling in the city of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website, representing your local street, neighbourhood or school. It's fast, free and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. A 3CR supporter. listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast and it's time for Tram Thoughts. Now, Idwin, before we jump into our Tram Thoughts on slang this week, I wanted to ask you, is there one word or a slang that you love and use all the time? Mm. Um, This is hard because it's hard to think about your own language. And in preparation for like such a question, I had to ask somebody else what I (laughs) use as my common thing. Um, Apparently, my most common phrase is wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, from David Bowie's (laughs) David Bowie's work. But I think my most common one is probably like cool, cool. I love cool as a as a slang. Okay. 
Mm. I, okay, I, have to, I haven't heard the Wham Bam Thank You Ma'am you said it in radio yet. So, Look, but I really, <laughs> I think that's a, that's a pretty eccentric one. But yeah, I, I would say the, the ones I use mostly are cool or like I say A a lot. Like A? 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 And the various meanings that. And the various meanings. I'd say for me, okay, I get caught out with this one quite a lot. It's Arvo, mm. which is apparently a very Australian language thing. And when, uh, like, meeting people who haven't been, or, you know, overseas, when I say Arvo, I just always get this perplexed look. And it takes me about a minute to be like, oh, yeah, of course, Arvo is just an Australian word. And no one else in the world understands it. So that is one I always get caught out on because I always say it all the time. Mm. But the other one, actually, is a bit more local. Um, there's a grocer nearby to us called the Happy Apple. And one day I was with my housemates and I was saying, I just started calling it the Apple. So I was like, why don't we just, you know, shorten everything like we the do? Apple. And, I, and they were like, no, we're not going to call it the Apple. I can confirm three months later, everyone calls it the Happel. And I feel very proud when everyone says the Happel. Um, and I, I, I joked at the time that this is happening, that we're going to start calling it the Happel. <laughs> oh, you're bad. <laughs> I'm, I'm bad. I'm bad with my, my slang and puns sometimes. Um, Excellent. But yeah, so this whole discussion on slang is quite interesting. Um, and prior to actually researching into it, I was incorrect in my understanding of how the words slang originates mm. so i always thought that slang was shortened for shortened language as in slang is slang for shortened language which, i mean it's, it's a good guess well it makes sense it makes and sense. like i don't think it's necessarily been disproven but mm-hmm. there is a more likely origin of the word mm-hmm. and so the word slang became popularized in english around the mid 18th century and so at the time slang referred to the lexicon of tramps and thieves at the time and so its likely origin as a word originated from a nordic phrase uh called slangjar clifton which literally means sling the jaw but is an expression to mean to abuse with words. And so that's kind of the origin of slang as a term. But today, slang is defined as informal but vivid colloquial speech. And it's used as a deliberate substitute for other terms or concepts in the same vernacular. Now, I wanted to ask you, why do you use slang? Like, why, why use slang? And what, why do you use it on a daily basis? Look, I think one, it's embedded in our culture. It's embedded in our, you know, our language. And it's, it's a really great way to signal communication to one another because it's just your shared, it's your shared dude. The second one is like going back to that sling of the jaw. It is so much fun. Let's face it. Slang words are cool. Like that, that's their epitome. They're nifty even. Um, and I think the use of them brings you joy in everyday life because they're not only are they words that convey meaning to another person but they create they carry nuanced meaning because they hold that cultural power they hold that cultural you know you know when i when intonation tone suggestion that there's a whole lot of delicacy to them and complexity to them so i think they're fun yeah well that's more or less why (laughs) we sort of collectively want to use them now is because like unlike language which is very much about communicating meaning Mm. slang Mm. is much more about communicating attitudes and sort of uh kind of atmospheres of yourself if you will and it helps like informalize situations 
and I've heard it described, it's kind of like fashion, which is not really about function, but it's more about embodying an attitude about mm. something. Okay. Um, but it's also interesting because slang also kind of is about power and power imbalances as well. So slang is also about helping identify members within a group and including or excluding those who are not in that group through using words that have no meaning to some people but have a lot of meaning to other people. Mm. Um, and it's also been very strongly associated with counterculture movements. So using slang so that outside group members, group members can't understand the conversations or the ideas. And so it's kind of about opposing established authority, about using the language and then making it a little bit your own and mm. so that other people can't understand it. And so there's a bit of a discussion about what is the value of slang and there's different camps depending where you sit. And it also very much, when you think about it, reflects power imbalances. So one group of people argues that adding slang to the language or English language in this case makes it more vibrant, creative, and it kind of gives more variety, as you were saying before, I wanted, like it's colourful. Hmm. Um, then the other camp argues that it's quite unintelligent and that implying by implying that slang is creative, that then kind of implies that the English language itself is uncreative, Ugh. which is, yeah, it's interesting. I, I don't agree with that proposition because I think you can create beautiful language with simple, like you don't have to assume complexity to create beauty with language. Mm. And I think is also with slang, you can create quite beautiful prose or poems or songs through slang and simple language rather than sort of complex English. But I'm curious to hear from you. Have you seen any examples where slang has kind of helped rectify power imbalances? All right. I've got a good example for when it has, maybe some examples for when it hasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one I would use, and this is the recent one, and I'm sorry if everyone's tired of hearing this, but I would say, okay, boomer is a piece of slang which has recently got a lot of mileage and has had a lot of power. So OK Boomer, for anyone who's not commonly using this, is a phrase that's been largely popularised by Gen Z and millennials. So we're talking 30s to about 10 or so. And it's it's used to kind of discredit an attitude held by a previous generation, usually baby boomers, but more so, um, it's not really exclusive to the age group. It's more the attitude of people who are hyper um, belief in capitalist societies, in kind of, you know, meritocracies, who kind of have the the three houses that they're using as <laughs> the negatively gearing and stuff like that. And it's this, and that attitude of, you know, oh, these young people aren't trying hard, or these young people aren't blah, blah, blah. And so, okay, Boomer is kind of used to discredit that and be like, yeah, okay, Boomer, whatever. Um, and it, it's been used as a shutdown slang term. And I think, you know, the one that really hit for me when we saw a New Zealand MP, a millennial MP in the New Zealand parliament um, arguing for a climate change bill and someone heckling her from the other op- from her opposition, her going, OK, boomer, midway <laughs> through her parliamentarian speech. So I think that was one example where it's like that's been quite a powerful term because Gen Zs and millennials use it a lot of the time because they feel disenfranchised and they feel like whatever they do, you know, they're never going to get into the housing market. They're probably not going to get a steady job. Superannuation's very hard to get. You know, all these sorts of different pressures aren't really recognized for young people. You know, mental illness is not really recognized for young people. So the OK Boomer was kind of a bit of a shield against that. It's kind of like, I'm not going to engage in your argument because your argument doesn't 
um, recognize the struggles I'm going through, right? That was an interesting like leveling of the playing field I felt. On the opposite side of it, going back to that idea of what you were saying of like in and outy group almost or counterculture movements, like I think immediately of um, First Nations slang and African-American slang or just, just, you know, sort of these sorts of these sorts of groups because there's a lot of really powerful, beautiful slang in those groups, which then become appropriated by white culture. And it's this taking away of power because it's this appropriating of the slang. So we hear this a lot with like first nations and the word deadly, like that is a word which has significant meaning, nuanced meaning to first nations communities and has, you know, kind of evolved as a slang term. And then you see, the appropriating that into like, you know, mainstream brands and organizations getting on board. And all of a sudden that power is taken away. A same can be easily said with a lot of stuff from um, African-American culture, like, you know, YOLO, fleek, ratchet, um, all these sort of mainstream words, which get used a lot by, by pop culture usually come from these groups and uh, they lose a lot of their power or meaning when they're appropriated. So it's, that's one of those weird ones where it's like it starts off a very powerful originating originating out of those groups and out of the beauty and creativity and nuance of, and complexity of those groups and then it gets disinf- it gets yeah it, it's disempowered by being appropriated to mainstream and loses that um so mm-hmm. I, I think those are like two examples that have kind of swelling around my head when you bring up this question I mean, what they both show is the power that slang actually has mm. and the simplicity that it has of power and control and how that is used and who uses it, mm. which sort of leads to this discussion about ownership of language as well, because one camp of people might say, well, slang is degrading language. It's making it too colloquial, which it could be a gate or is a gatekeeper attitude that this language has to be held up in a certain form and prose and that in itself is quite exclusionary to, mm. to speak in a certain way but then and then slang is kind of a way of saying well this is us creating our own language that is for us to use to communicate between each other mm. um and it's sort of challenging this gatekeeper behavior uh, by allowing people to kind of own the language and, you know, create the language that they want to use and communicates the ideas that they want to communicate. So, and which can be a really empowering experience and also really fun as well. So to finish off, I, went, I wanted to ask, if you were to create some words or some slang, what would be some of the ideals or words or themes that you'd want to kind of be embodied the slang like what's the personality of the slang mm, it's hard I like a lot of like tick, tick noises which I'm sorry for any listeners that's going to really hurt on the radio but I, I'd love something like like I'd love to have some of those sort of really fun hard sounding slang words more in our yeah. vocab I think my favorite ones are also slang terms which perfectly capture a mood if that makes sense so what I, if I was going to tackle a slang word, I'd need to think of, you know, I don't may, I know, maybe that moment when you wake up and you're really crusty and you're waking up, you know, and you're just that, that sort of bleary eyed sort of thing, you know, I was really gaggled this morning. I don't know, something like that. Um, that's, that's probably where I'd want to go with it. Like, yeah, yeah, I think, I think those beautiful moods. Um, that being said, I also, as we know, love the intonation. So maybe I'd want to play around with, you know, some of those natural noises that we make and how 
that could be moved into a slang or that that intonation could be captured in a word yeah fascinating i think for me i guess you could actually use intonation but i don't know maybe language that has a greater connection and root to nature or natural environments Mm. um could be kind of interesting i don't know maybe mimicking bird sounds or or sort of creating language that helps us feel more connected to our environments I don't know how, what form that would be, but there's something about when you use a phrase or expression over and over again, and it's got a certain sort of origin connected to it. I would hope that kind of subconsciously you then think about the environment a lot more on a more daily basis. No idea how that would work, but I would love that. I'd like it. And as a closing thought, like uh, just for my two cents, I think studying language and looking at language, it's such an illusion that there can be a fixed language and that there is a, there is a school of, you know, language. English is the best example of a bastardized language, but every language is constantly evolving, constantly changing. And there's such a beauty in that, you know, um, slang words like nerd, scaredy cat, feminism. These are all like, these all started off as slang and they're now these beautiful terms, you know, and touching on your last one, Rob, litterbug. Litterbug is a great environmental slang mm. term. Mm. So I definitely think there's such a, I don't know, it's, it's great to celebrate and have beauty in it. Mm. And it's, it's fun to sort of imagine words of what, what could be and start to Absolutely. try and communicate new ideas. Because I mean, we're always feeling new things or experiencing new things. We have to find a new vocabulary that can be expressed that in a very contemporary 21st century way. <laughs> so that's my tram thoughts this week, but thank you for joining me on this tram thought, Ivan. No worries. My pleasure, Rob.
right, now that was Sampa Great's Freedom. Before then, we had Truck Stop Honeymoon with Bad Attitude. And right at the start of the show, a little Melbourne band, Kakadu, with their song Just a Moment. Now, next up, we're actually going to listen back to a conversation organized by Annie from Stick Together of just about a month ago, actually, discussing how COVID has disproportionately affected women and how it's likely to keep affecting women, you know, these crises, until there is a drastic systemic change around how we are paid, valued and, yeah, treated in society. I'll pass it over to Annie. There is still a 14% gap between women's pay for comparative work with men and that there is a systemic bias in favour of men that leaves women carrying the weight of social cohesion but in poverty, in old age. Today's program follows part of the panel discussion hosted by the Women's Unit at the Victorian Trades Hall, facilitated by the co-leads of the women's team, Jodie Pesky and Pia Shaveri. We hear from panel members Tanya Kovac, who's the CEO of Genvic, Melbourne, and Andrea Carson, political scientist and an associate professor in journalism in the Department of Politics, Media and Philosophy at La Trobe Uni in Melbourne, and Noreen Young, industry professor, Indigenous Policy at Jumba Institute of Indigenous Education Research at the University of Technology in Sydney in New South Wales. The questions are by Pia. The theme, women have been disproportionately negatively affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. Emergencies such as this have happened in the past and will continue to happen in the future until we dramatically change the systems and structures in which we live. Women already experience a gender gap shown in pay, averaging 40%, as we've already said, less than men, and emergencies such as these risk women falling further behind, which is unacceptable. This is what the panel was talking about. Let's hear what they've got to say. Uh, well, first of all, I'd have more women in decision-making positions and more from diverse backgrounds too, because I think when you look at um, countries that have done pretty well with managing the pandemic, um, there's women that are leading them. I'm thinking of Norway, Germany, and not far from us, New Zealand. Um, and there's been some academic papers written about this. It's early days, but it's, um, there's a tendency to think it's because economics is not prioritised over health, that there mm -hmm. is an understanding that they're not um, a binary that, and they're not one against the other, that you can view um, health as being as important as economics and, indeed, for our economy to thrive, we need to have a healthy workforce. So I think we need to have more women. I commend the Victorian government that has 50% of its cabinet as women and for introducing the um, equality bill that will take place uh, to ensure greater equality within the public service workforce and universities in 2021. I think they are really good measures. Uh, I think we need to protect those at the front line that are disproportionately women and therefore, pandemic leave is just a no-brainer so that you don't have people that are not only threatening their health and jeopardising their health, but have the capacity to provide for their family if they do get sick or to be able to provide for their family when they're behaving responsibly and staying away from the workforce because they may have been exposed to the pandemic. And I think this has really exposed the underinvestment in childcare and in aged care 
and both of those things disproportionately affect women. We have mainly women working in the um, aged care workforce. It's been undervalued, underfunded, and as a result, we've seen those workers working in multiple places and childcare needs to be universally supported. Other places have free universal childcare. If we're going to do that, we need to make sure it's properly funded. Tanya, what are your plans for this question? <laughs> Look, I mean, again, I'll just, having engaged in supporting women getting into parliament, I can only just, um, you know, support everything that Andrea has said around the importance of representation. But watching good women operate in parliament, I've also had an, an opportunity to see what the limitations are, even when you, when you have good numbers. And one of the limitations is, is around the budget. Um, we have never had a female treasurer or a finance minister in the state, and there's very few. We've never had one at a national level either, um, and still we're probably some time away from actually making that happen. And what does that mean? What is manifesting itself um, in even before COVID-19 is that we don't really have a strong gender lens over the way that we spend and uh, utilise this huge resource. I mean, any government across the country is the biggest business in town. So that money that is available within government, you want to ensure that it's, that it's gender equal. So if I could wave my magic wand, it would be for there to be a gender equal recovery for treasurers and treasuries to deeply understand that and drive um, all of the stimulus and uh, investment decisions because, you know, we are going to rely on government, the public sector that will drive a regrowth strategy. Anyone who says that austerity measures are going to be a good thing in order to encompass um, our recovery as a nation are just basically talking about indirect discrimination of women. Mm -hmm. and, you know, if you hear the term, when you, if we start getting to that point um, where we're, we're talking about, you know, the need to balance budgets, yada, yada, what we're actually talking about is massively impoverishing women in the public sector. It's about a gender equal recovery. Um, Noreen, what would you do if you were in charge of managing the pandemic? Well, I'd follow the money too, and I'd been sinking large amounts of investment into those public services and sectors um, that, as Andrea quite rightly said, have been exposed. But I'd also say not only are we lacking women in those decision-making structures that have led to such awful policy settings during the pandemic, I wouldn't just have women, I'd have diverse people, I'd have diversity represented and I'd have, I'd have intersectionality among women represented, but I would also, and I agree with Tanya, I really hope that we don't go further into austerity measures. I would have all kinds of diversity, uh, of the diversity that represents the Australian community represented in those decision-making um, forums because it is is the diverse communities that's having um, the most that's experiencing the most negative impact. But as Andrea says, what's occurred really is an exposure 
of mm. where our society is absolutely failing. Um, and certainly um, I remember one of the meetings that we at We Are Union Women actually coordinated. I remember one woman in particular who was working from home with two children there. She was a single parent as well. And she was saying... Um, she felt like that the cracks were exposed. It wasn't worse. The situation wasn't different or worse than what it had been. It's just that the pandemic's kind of highlighted and exposed what she's dealing with and how she's working. But now everybody can see it and her life was much more public now. So that... Pia, can I say that that micro experience in the home of that exacerbation is actually mirrored in what is what happens at the macro level within a state or national budget so mm-hmm. we, we yep. were before covid we were talking and saying hey the budget's not gender equal like you mm. don't put a gender lens over this document when you're in a when you're in a crisis you can really see it it's really mm. interesting at the moment um the parliamentary budget office at a state level is tracking expenditure now, you, you, we wouldn't usually be able to, tra- tracking COVID-19 expenditure, we wouldn't usually see that in a non-pandemic way in, li- in live time because no one does that. But if you log on to their website at the moment, they show it, they're tracking all the money and how it's getting spent. If you plug in, you know, gender or family violence or women, the total spend ends up being less than one percent of what Mm. of that now that we know that already so uh, you know there are there are some important silver linings out of COVID because it is it is showing what's happening in a in a very clear way the other speakers have mentioned childcare. I constantly am in a state of dismay um many years ago I was a young union organizer in the childcare industry and um, it was at the time when the accreditation process and the subsidy process was just being introduced. And we were talking about the same things then that we're talking about now. And mm. I then had young children, had them through the childcare system. I'm just dismayed and amazed constantly that we're still talking about this. Childcare needs to be free and accessible to everybody um, it is staggering that this happened and then has been taken away from people. I think we have to resolve childcare, but we also need to put some time, and we always talk about childcare as a feminist community, but we need to put some time into out-of-school care, which is highly problematic. The school system still isn't set up for working parents. Um, we need to have some really long hard thinking about that and now I'm at the other end and I'm experiencing a lot of elder care issues at that policy setting and what that means for men and women who are participating in the employment market right and how that impacts and we need to look at that from a diversity lens as well Um, because for most Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people for example older relatives are looked after at home or families and it's mostly women um, doing the caring aboriginal women doing the caring around all of the care groups um, particularly relatives with disability as well so we need to be looking at our policy settings um, as it pertains to child school and elder care in a way that is intersectional and Mm -hmm. takes into account the differences in family settings and family setups 
and even in families and the way they operate, most families make decisions, most who have got young children. And I have to say, we just, my partner and I just keep looking at each other, saying to each other, thank goodness our children aren't little and we don't have them locked down and having to homeschool them. It's been bad enough dealing with a university student who can't go to the pub. Um, but, you know, that makes you a misery guts. Um, but that, those policy settings, I think COVID has exposed and that's what we need to be looking at. It is mm, absolutely, absolutely disgraceful that we entrust the care of people who are precious to us and let's not mince those words and use vulnerable or use disadvantaged or any of those things. What we're talking about is children and elderly people. So people who are most precious to us emotionally um, as a society and as community members are, are being given the short end of the stick, as are the people who care for them. Mm -hmm. And it is just an absolute disgrace in terms of how we see each other as mm. community members. So it, it's really problematic. You're listening to Stick Together, Worker Stories, Union News, Social Justice Issues. Today we're listening to part of a panel discussion put on by the Women's Unit at the Victoria Trades Hall for Equal Pay Day. The panellists include Tanya Kovac, Andrea Carson and Nareen Young. Andrea, what are your thoughts about where women need to be in this recovery process? Thanks, Pia. I think we forums like this are a really good place to start. And I say that because... Uh, it's important to understand the scale and the scope of the problem, but also the hidden impacts that are going to come down the line. And if I use the example of my own sector of academia, because and our own research um, that I've been doing with the University of Sydney and with the University of Melbourne, where we've surveyed Australians and Americans, we found that women are doing the lion's share of the childcare, of the homeschooling, and um, of the housekeeping. In fact, they're doing more housework than they've done in a long time. Men are also doing some of the homeschooling, um, but not as much as women, and they're doing some of the childcare, but off a much lower base. And so that's got a ripple effect for a year or two or three years time. Um, already journal articles, one of the key indicators in academia about how you're performing, are showing that women are not submitting as much this year. Mm -hmm. And then when you get evaluated for promotion or for leadership roles and all those sorts of things, those metrics come into play. And I'm sure academia, I'm just using that as an example um, it, because it's one that I know, but I'm sure that's true of other sectors as well, that it's impossible. I don't like the word multi-skilling. I don't think it's actually possible. I think women have just got very good at being able to switch gears really quickly between lots of tasks going on at the same time. And when we've got the kids at home, that comes at a price. We're not doing things to the same level in the workplace that we were doing before. And there needs to be acknowledgement of that, I think, because it is going to impact on what the expectations are for our outputs further down the track. And I think forums like this are a good way to start with that. I also think we need to acknowledge that it's a global problem. The um, UN for Women went to the G20 last month and put forward a statement and a plea that um, going forward, women are at the center of investment strategies and restructure strategies. Um, they put forward an economic argument that uh, women contribute 11 trillion US dollars annually, their full potential is not being realized, hasn't been realized, and it's certainly not going to be realized in the post-COVID world if we're not prioritizing 
the reinvestment in areas where um, women's potential is realised. And we see that in Australia with the home builder scheme. Um, it's a very male dominated area that mainly employs men. Um, it's only a certain cohort of people who are able to take advantage of that scheme. You have to have the means to be able to afford renovations or to buy a new house. And when you think about the value of a policy such as that against all the others that could have been available, I think we really need to have a rethink about the way we're resetting because that does skewer disproportionately the gendered response and who are the winners and losers out of that. Um, and then the final point I would make that also came out of our research is that women are feeling the emotional toll and stress much more than men. They're worried about their economic futures more so than men are, and they've got good reason. We've got the ABS stats that show that um, women are losing jobs more than men are, so any wonder they're more worried about it. But we also asked about how people are sleeping. We found that one in three men experienced under the first lockdown um, felt quite calm most of the time. By comparison, the majority of women weren't sleeping very well and were feeling a heightened state of anxiety. So again, talking about these hidden impacts that might come further down the track, we need to recognise there's an emotional and psychological toll that's playing out right now that is going to have an effect further on. And so if we're looking at reinvestment, I think they're key areas. Yeah, look, I mean, we've also done research to help to um, support which brought together our, all of our members reflecting on the impact of, of COVID-19. And, you know, one of the areas in mental health that Andrew was talking about, you know, a 2,800% increase in one month of attendance to the, to the Alfred's Women's Mental Health Clinic. Mm. That's in one month. Mm. So this is not, this is more than stress. You know, this is significant. The impact of, um, of a disaster is a significant mental health challenge for women. What would we, what would I do? Well, I mean, I, and what could we do? I think the real thing is that women have been talking about the solutions with groups like this have been talking about the solutions for equal pay and gender discrimination in budgets for a long time. And what's not happening is that that expertise is not being brought into the centre of decision-making and then implemented. So we, we've, we're talking at a state and national level about, hey, why don't we just bring the academy, industry, workers, community, all of the people who are who are experts in gendered workforce nuance, who are experts in um, gender and feminist economic theory, and for them to provide an independent advisory function to government so that they listen always. Why are we suggesting this? Well, we were suggesting it before COVID. We still think it's relevant right now. If Treasury was prepared, they don't have these people inside Treasury. Otherwise, you'd see these solutions, right? What we really need is to have this collaborative approach to the development of, of ideas um, and to bring the best women's minds to the application of them. How much does something like that cost? Not very much. You know, we've got a $1 million over four years budget bid to try to bring some of that together within the state of Victoria. And, you know, there are good, strong gender equity advocates 
calling for a similar thing at a national level. The National Foundation of Australian Women has basically been performing a sort of sort of this role for free for a couple of years but you need we need something that sticks and that you know the treasurer and the, and treasuries are going to listen to because mm. um, you know finding solutions we're not going to find solutions quickly to everything some of them are easy um but you know dealing addressing some of uh, the gendered segregation in work in workforces some of those things are a bit trickier try in two minutes or less to tell us quickly what you think are the best ways what are the best options for women to create change that they want do they go on strike do they negotiate do they take some other kind of direct action let us know your thoughts uh tanya while you're there what's your thoughts on that i believe in a structured clever international strike i've spoken mm -hmm. a few times about that yep Great. Like, okay. like I, I, we need, and one that is inclusive of non-workers or mm. or unpaid workers, I should say. Um, mm -hmm. it, not it, the concept of work has to be a completely feminist and feminised one when we do that. Yeah, and I think that's really important to, that we recognise and include all that unpaid labour that is still work and still requires a whole lot of skills, a whole lot of thinking and a whole lot of um, preparation and so on, and yet is consistently disregarded and not considered so. So, yeah, that's important. All right, Noreen, what's your thoughts on how to get change? Oh, I sort of despair, really, at this point. I, I think... Um, you might be inculcated in Victoria from what it's like to live in conservative environments at both federal and state level, but it's very, very depressing. Um, I think realistically at this stage we have to keep doing what we're doing. We have to keep using forums like this to talk about policy settings. Um, as Tanya says, our volunteer feminist peaks are doing these things voluntarily. Um, I think that um, there's a lot of work going on by Aboriginal women in particular around policy that's being where social media is being utilised a lot. I think the, the advent of social media has in particular changed um, a self provided a self-determining a place for a self-determining voice for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in a way that there didn't exist before Twitter in particular. Um, I think that we need to be supporting our feminist peaks and making our feminist peaks more intersectional. They can be very white, um, which worries me and has worried me for a long time, and very able-bodied and very straight, um, and not taking into the account to account the needs of intersectional women. So um, I'd like to think we could pull off a strike, but I doubt it. I think that levels of exploitation and employment insecurity are so large, both in Australia and particularly in overseas settings at the moment, um, even more than ever, that we just couldn't pull it off. But it's not a bad idea, Tanya, and one I'll give some thought to. Great. Well, there's... Two interesting thoughts there with quite different um, processes behind the thinking, but also both 
good ideas to take away. And I think, um, Noreen, you're, you're really bringing to our attention this need for that diversity lens as well, and that um, we can't do it with just looking at gender. We've also got to look at intersectionality as well, which is really important. Andrea, what are your thoughts? Well, I think there's a lot of expertise in the virtual room. So the um, exact mechanism I'll throw back to uh, our guests in the room. But I do think there's some things we can do immediately. And that is to ensure that um, job seeker doesn't go to a low level that is um, going to further disadvantage people. I think we need to be lobbying um, as a society, not just as women, to ensure that. And also that JobKeeper um, gets reinstated for childcare workers. And there's some certainty around um, who's included and not included in that. I think it needs to be more inclusive. And I think we need to think about women who are sole traders as well, who um, JobKeeper might help shore up wages, but it doesn't help with overheads and with stock and all those other things. And so there's some real gaps there of people, women who are making a real go of things. And then the pandemic comes along and this could usurp their chance um, of, a, uh, of the future that they've set up for themselves. And finally, I think something incumbent upon all of us is to talk to younger people and to talk to our kids. Um, I was talking to my daughter just before this that it would take her 59 days of unpaid work to, uh, or of work to earn the same as a male counterpart. And that when she finishes university, she um, can expect to be earning $3,000 less. And yet we're in the third millennium um, coming into the, in the second decade. That's just crazy stuff. Um, I think younger people are going to help us find the answers to this. Um, the fact that they're pulling all their money out of superannuation, though, doesn't bode very well. Um, they've got very precarious economic futures. So I think we need to keep visibility up, keep education up. And um, we can do some immediate lobbying on some of those policy mechanisms that are going to make a real difference of JobKeeper and JobSeeker. And that was Annie recording the Equal Pay Day COVID-19 panel discussion held by the Victorian Trades Hall. Now, if you are interested in listening back to the event, you can listen to it at the Victorian Trades Hall Council site, which is, or at least at this site, www.unionwomen.org.au. The discussion is called Equal Pay Day COVID-19. Thanks also to Annie for sticking that together and recording it. Uh, Annie is from Stick Together, which is just after our show and always well worth listening to or sticking around for, if I dare to use that pun. Now, on a more concerning note, I also wanted to give a quick update on what has been happening with the Jab Warong Embassy. So this is a story that Wednesday Breakfast, as well as 3CR, have been following very, very closely. And on Monday, there was a very alarming update. So as of 11 o'clock, um, 15 police vehicles, including public order response teams, arrived at the Jab Warong Embassy this, this Monday. Uh, their aim was to clear out protesters, dismantle camps and destroy cultural sites. Now, this has been threatened for months now. Um, however, it seems that the Victorian government has actually started to go through with it rather seriously. Police closed off access to Hillside Road and blocked access to the blockade camp that has been protecting the sacred directions trees. Machines also moved into the area with police um, and began removing blockade structures and cutting down trees. Now, unfortunately, later on Monday, they actually cut down a 400-year-old directions tree, which is environmentally, culturally and spiritually horrific. Protesters have locked themselves onto barrels, trees, and have used other tactics to delay work. Now, it's 
worthwhile remembering that the, <laughs> this fight's been going on for more than two years, really the last decade. Um, and for the last two years, Jaborong Embassy has kept these trees safe and has delayed construction. This proposed upgrade, if completed, would desecrate culturally significant sites, including 800-year-old birthing trees. It is very worrying. This last step is quite alarming, and it's one of those cases that Jaborong has called for people to get in touch with their local ministers, state ministers, um, Vic Rhodes, and protest it. Today I will publish on the Facebook on our Facebook site, so Wednesday Breakfast Facebook, as well as the rundown on 3CR, a uh, link to Jaborong's like what you can do support paper, which gives a list of options of how you can support to their struggle. Um, it's a massive ongoing issue that we are going to follow as a station, so I'm sure you'll hear a lot more coverage around the station. Um, I'm going to play now a two-minute video published last year about the Jaborong Embassy, just explaining the significance of the place as well as the people who are protesting its uh, destruction. Uh, my name is Junior. We're at the Jaborong Embassy, uh, 10 kilometres of Ararat. I'm here standing for sovereignty for, uh, for my people. And I'm also standing to protect the land from uh, getting taken away. You know, these are our places for our women and children, not just that, our men as well, and our people to come to these lands, to do their culture, to learn their heritage, and just be who they are. All uh, the government, they want to build a second highway here. So all this place would have to be taken away and destroyed. Our culture, we're going to lose. That's, that's going to take a toll a lot, our culture, you know. I'm uh, Cass Road Knight and uh, I'm from Lakes Entrance. I'm here because I just feel that the Aboriginal people are not being listened to and that more uh, white people need to actually stand beside them and help them with their causes, which are righteous causes. They want to um, take down 12 kilometres of trees, some of which were birthing trees for the um, Aboriginal ancestors. If they lose those trees, they lose their connection with their ancestors. My name's Kara. My friends all call me Fox. We're here on the unceded territory of the Japurong people on women's birthing country. Some of these trees are 800 years old, as old if not older than Notre Dame. This whole country is, is stolen and has been used and abused for resources for the past 250 years. But I don't think there's a lot of heart in it. I don't think that the people who are making those plans and, and signing off on those documents higher up there, they haven't even been here. And I believe that they don't want to come here because they're afraid of the fact that they will have their minds changed. People who have really benefited from colonialism are starting to realise what we're actually losing by continuing to feed into these stories. We're, I mean, we're in the, the midst of a climate change crisis, but if we had listened to Indigenous people from the get-go, we wouldn't be here, and I don't think anyone could argue with that. Uh, indigenous land care wouldn't have us in the place that we are now. And you've been listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. We're closing up the show now and just running through what we've had today. Our main, I suppose, listening pleasure was Kerry Warren from the Malakuta and District Recovery Association. And she was talking about Malakuta and the process of official versus unofficial recovery and what it looks like to have to come out of such um, a devastating bushfire season that we saw. We've also listened to quite a few conversations from around 3CR, which has been awesome, as always. Uh, and on Tram Thoughts, we looked at slang.
Yeah, so we're looking at, I guess, the origins of slang as a word, but then also what it represents. And it's about actually a lot of it, ownership of language mm. and power imbalances and trying to rectify those power imbalances. Uh, so fascinating discussion. We were arguing that we should have more slang, which involves more difficult to pronounce sounds and <laughs> environmental connotations. And looking looking up for the preparation of this interview, uh, my favourite piece of slang that we've we did not cover, so I just want to say it now, is a Swedish piece which is pronounced for ot smor i smorland, which means for all the butter in small land. <laughs> what does it mean? Do you know what it means? For all the butter in small land. So it's like, I would not do that for all the butter in small land because small land produces a lot of butter. There you go. There you go. It's got a health conscious message as well. It's got a health conscious <laughs> message. And also, I just wanted to give also a massive shout out to something very silly but um if you are interested in listening to some stupid slang adaptions of things um someone out there has done a pride and prejudice lit edition for young hip kids uh i tell you what as a massive jane austen fan it's atrocious i love it it's beautiful um so i will put a link in that for you guys for anyone who wants to listen to uh yeah someone update pride and prejudice for a young audience (laughs) But apart from that, that is us done for today. So we will talk to you next Wednesday. I hope you have a lovely week up until then. Thanks to Earth Matters before us and... Stick around for Stick Together.